Hello and welcome to another episode of the Therapist Connect podcast. Today's episode is a shortened version of a discussion that was hosted by Therapist Connect earlier this year. Kaz and I, as co-leads of Therapist Connect, hosted a debate with some of the authors from a new book called Queering Psychotherapy. This podcast is a shortened version of that discussion. If you'd like to hear the full debate, please go to our YouTube channel and search for Queering Psychotherapy. Thanks for listening to the Therapist Connect podcast. If you'd like to support us, then please go to your favourite podcast platform and leave us a review. Okay, Kaz, would you like to start us off with the introductions? Ellis J. Johnson, um, who is a psychodynamic psychotherapeutic counsellor and trainer, specialising in working alongside clients who are transgender, non-binary, queer and or questioning. Um, we also have Jane, uh, Jane Chance Chazelska, pronouns they them, who's a relational integrative psychotherapist in private practice, editor and writer, as well as a member of the relational school organising team. And then we have Amanda Middleton, pronouns she, her, who is a white, queer, femme and antipodean who thinks a lot about gender. For the last 20 years, she's fought passionately to put queer lives at the centre of knowledge making, obsessively immersing herself in queer theory as a survival skill. She wonders how we as queer people can reshape our relationship to power and resist oppressive forces to take up more space. Initially, she qualified as a psychologist in Australia and then as a family and systemic practice um, as a family and systemic psychotherapist in the UK, a UKCP registered psychotherapist in independent practice. Amanda works primarily with relationships, gender, sex and sexuality, specialising within the LGBTIQ communities. She has extensive experience in the NHS and social care and has previously worked as a specialist in the areas of sex and sexuality, dual diagnosis, HIV and sexual health drug and alcohol use and domestic violence. Her practice is the Pink Practice, and she is also an associate lecturer at the Tavistock and Portman Trust and supervisor at Gendered Intelligence. And and last but not least, we have Neil Young, who is an integrative arts psychotherapist working with private practice uh, with a diverse group of people, especially in terms of gender, race, age, class, sexuality and neurodiversity. He teaches on various therapy trainings, including the Institute for Arts and Therapy and Education. He offers workshops, training, lectures and embodied performances specialising in gender and sexuality, broader intersectional difference, including an anti-racist class aware position, and dance movement as a means of connecting to self and others. Neil also works as a consultant trainer for organisations such as Coos and the Sunflower Network. He enjoys creating open, safe spaces that encourage curious exploration and increase understanding. And in 2022, Neil co-wrote a chapter on queer children, Don't Panic, Queering the Child, as part of the groundbreaking Queering Psychotherapy book. Welcome, everyone. Um, it might be a good place to start and um, maybe if we could just maybe have a little bit of a, a discussion or exploration around the motivation behind the book what kind of um what kind of pushed you all to kind of come together and and and, and bring this book out uh, thanks Peter and Kaz um 
yeah, I just just before I answer that, I wanted to thank you for hosting us. Um, some of us from querying psychotherapy feels really good to be held virtually um, by you and by the therapist connect community. Um, I also, as always, want to thank um, my co-contributors and co-conspirators here today, Ellis, Amanda, and Neil. Um, I've said it before; I'll say it again. What you all put out into the world continues to teach and inspire me. So thank you. Um, I'm Chance Chiselska. I'm a psychotherapist, and they then pronouns. So you asked about the motivation for why we co-created Queering Psychotherapy. And I was looking at some research a couple of years ago and found out that um, LGBTIQ plus people are more likely than cisgender and heterosexual people to suffer with mental health issues. Yet often in therapy, um, we have poorer outcomes. So I knew that this research um, in tandem with the anecdotal experiences and examples that I'd had and I'd heard about um, meant that you know I felt something had to be done um, because when I was learning in my training um, you know about a million years ago and it wasn't even that long ago it was about 10 years ago in um, Eurocentric psychotherapeutic theories which were developed largely by heterosexual cisgender and white theorists was that queer individuals are often seen as a singular group through an other othered lens and so my experience in my own training and also in some of the therapy relationships I've had was one of discomfort in you know many kind of situations but in amongst that you know I also was was you know receiving profound learning and healing um so despite you know the value that um, comes from these many of these theories um, that we learn in our primary trainings and also in CPDs subsequently, um, we, you know, can often end up pathologizing and marginalizing and diminishing queer and trans lives. Um, even if we're queer and trans ourselves, you know, we can we all internalize this stuff. Um, you know, it's not just the trainings, but the trainings that come from, you know, uh, the, you know, the socio-political context. Um, as an example of the kind of history of this, you know, in Britain, psychoanalytic organisations only apologised for labelling homosexuality as an illness around 10 years ago. Um, and in, the, um, in America, it was just a few years ago, in 2019. In fact, I was looking into some of the kind of harm that um, has happened within our profession and I, I saw a paper that was written I mean admittedly it was 1979 but still there was a psychoanalyst called Limitani who was at the time a president the president of the British Psychoanalytical Society and he wrote that homosexuality should be understood as a defensive solution to a variety of neurotic and psychotic problems so you know what you were talking about earlier Kaz the uh, homophobia you know has has long roots and um, back into society and history and culturally and you know obviously within our profession and it's a problematic legacy um, obviously there, there's been feminist and queer and lesbian and gay and trans practitioners who've critiqued these theories and continue to do so and and you know many are in the book or are referenced in the book but 
our profession and you know psychotherapy and psychoanalysis have tended to locate the problem in the individual or their family and rarely acknowledge or understand how factors such as sexuality and gender and race and class have an impact on clients' lived experiences. In fact, um, we're often considered, you know, our, our difference or otherness, you know, is often considered to be the source of our problems um, rather than the fact that we live in a world that devalues and denigrates certain embodiments while rewarding others and expecting everyone to be white and cis and heterosexual. I mean, I've, I've heard countless times um, from people who've been in therapy who've said they've been misgendered or shamed about their sexuality or when they talk about racism with a white therapist or, you know, they, they've been pathologised or problematised and othered by therapists, which is, you know, no place any client wants to be. Um, so querying psychotherapy is an antidote to that. Um, and what we're doing throughout the chapters is is attempting to make visible the, the structural inequalities that that impact clients lives and you know who are queer or trans or cutipark or any clients who have identities or aspects that fall outside of what's normatively expected or of what jake yearsley in in his chapter calls the heteronormative trance which is a phrase i really love hmm. um so it's in this context that we and our clients find ourselves in a mental health crisis, particularly among trans and cutipot clients who are bombarded with hate day in, day out. And I was shocked to discover recently when I was reading something, I think it was, I can't remember which publication it was, but apparently in the last 10 years, hate crimes against LGBTIQ plus people in the UK has risen by 349%. 349%. and you know, yes, all sorts of things have happened. You know, we've become more visible. Maybe that's part of why, you know, there's such a backlash. You know, that's often the way, isn't there? When there's a kind of liberation movement uh, that happens and there's more visibility and and the backlash. But it's it's a horrendous kind of context and to be living in. Um, so whether you're a therapist or in therapy or just interested in therapy, um, querying psychotherapy is an accessible, uh, radical, joyful, healing collection of conversations. And they are conversations. Some are, some are written, uh, but some part of the whole kind of queering and decolonizing uh, practice of the book was to write um, in a more accessible way. So to have a conversation between different practitioners um, about, you know, certain issues arising in in you know, the course of our lives and, and our clients' lives. Um, and I think that's what, what has made the book so popular. Um, it's, a, you know, it's very accessible and, um, yeah, really kind of reflects some of the dynamism um, of, the, of the, you know, therapeutic dyad. One of the phrases um, that's used in the, um, in the acknowledgement section is um, that it's a fusion um, and I just really, really liked that word because I, I just thought it really represents kind of all these different approaches and ways of understanding things all coming together. Um, and I, yeah, I really appreciate that about the book. It is a fusion and it's infused with, um, you know, all sorts of, you know, really uh, 
enlivening and you know sort of aspects of lived experience um so it, it feels yeah it feels very live and dynamic and not dry and um as as a lot of academic theory can um i'll, I'll read you a, a little bit from the opening chapter if you like my introduction In spring 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic and national lockdown started to change lives as we had lived them. Workplaces and meeting spaces emptied like caves. Days and weeks slowed down. Roads cleared of traffic, earth quiet and birdsong. Space opened up for a collaborative psychotherapeutic cross-fertilisation. Following a conversation with Dr Gail Lewis, in which she notes some of the ways that black lesbian poet and author Audre Lorde's ideas seemed to echo the work of white heterosexual male psychoanalyst Wilfred Bion. I reread Lord's essay, Poetry is Not a Luxury, and was struck by the therapeutic message in her description of poetry. Reflecting on the form of the revelatory distillation of experience that makes it possible to give name to the nameless so it can be thought, Lord's words sound not dissimilar to what white psychoanalyst Christopher Bollas conceived with his unthought known or the exploration of what we unconsciously learn of the object world as infants and how we can harness it in the service of our psyches. It wasn't the first time I'd felt Lord's words convey something vitally important about how we can examine and regulate our emotions. So it's not only poetry that is a vital place for self-reflection and understanding, as I believe therapy can also be, but also decolonial black, lesbian, feminist, queer and trans perspectives that can bring richness to our profession, a richness that often goes unacknowledged or is even rejected as too political, as if the therapy encounter is a politics-free space. It is because of the politics inherent in our lives, the inequalities that are endemic to it, that therapy, however, can often be a luxury and also a privilege, especially for those in the LGBTIQA plus and QTPOC communities. Therapeutic outcomes for these client groups also vary, perhaps, sometimes because of this unwillingness to accept that all of our identities are politicised out under white cis-heteropatriarchy. Indeed, Crawford et al. in 2018 found that people from sexual and ethnic minorities were more likely to report experiencing lasting bad effects from therapy. Rhymes et al. in 2019 also found that compared to heterosexual women, lesbian and bisexual women, had higher final session severity for depression, anxiety and functional impairment, an increased risk of not attaining reliable recovery in depression, anxiety or functioning. Similar results were found among bisexual men. In research by Stonewall in 2018, one in 20 LGBT people and one in five trans people reported that they had been pressured to access services or change to change or suppress their sexual orientation and or gender identity. Therapists already have an ethical obligation not to practice so-called conversion therapy, but these harmful practices do take place. Further, as this book goes to press, many therapists are expressing their opposition to the government decision to exclude trans people from the ban on so-called conversion therapy practices, despite the fact that more recent study statistics indicate that trans people are twice as likely as cisgender LGBT people to be offered or subjected to conversion practices. And that was from research in, 19, in 2022. 
I think I'll leave it there for now. Um, I'd love to see what any of my colleagues would like to say or feel moved to say. Thank you, Chance. I mean, inviting anyone else to jump in. Um, it might be useful if you do jump in to just say what the name of your chapter, the chapter you're involved in, is is called. Um, I mean, I agree with Chance about the accessibility of this book. Um, and I know a couple of you here um, took part in kind of interview style, um, uh, well, an interview style in the chapters. Um, um, how how did people find that? Was that your choice or chances? Happy to jump in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, thanks, guys. Um and thank you, Chance, also for uh yeah, sort of getting us kicked off and and um reminding us about the context of the book. Um because it was it's quite a long time ago now, actually. I think we all we started to, to pull all this together. Um, and uh, so, yeah, my chapter is on working with trans and gender expansive clients. And uh, I really, I find it really generative to be in conversation with chance. I mean, we had, uh, you know, a couple of broad questions to kind of to, to chew on, to sit with. Um, but what came out of the conversation was, was uh, much deeper, much richer than anything I could have just kind of come up with on my on my own so I think that was a really um yeah really yeah uh, enjoyable way of, of kind of coming together and I think you know hearing you, you speak about this chance a couple of words I'm sitting with main word I'm sitting with is centering or recentering or decentering um what we understand as sort of the parameters of of normal um, human behavior, uh, human behavior, and I think with this book, what we're trying to do is uh, is is recenter queer, trans, intersex experiences as not being on the margins of, of of humanity. We're not on the margins of human experience, but actually, we're we're right in the middle, and we uh, represent something that is is for everybody actually and that's why i'm also interested in using you know the acronym gsrd instead of lgbtqia plus so gsrd is uh, gender sex and relationship diversity and um that acronym uh sort of demonstrates i suppose that everybody has a gender everybody has a sexuality or a relationship to sexuality everyone has a relationship to their relationship style um so this work is not just for um, us, but in centering the most marginalized people, um, it shifts the whole conversation for everyone. Uh, we shift this whole, the whole lens. Um, and, you know, as queer trans people, it kind of comes naturally to us, I think, to do that. We're, we're used to doing that. So, um, you know, it's such a, it's such a privilege to be involved with this and, I think the feedback we're getting already is is really exciting. Um, so yeah, Amanda, Neil, I don't know if you want to jump in. Um, I also had the, I think, advantage of being in conversation with Chance in order to create the chapter. 
And for me, there was something really kind of alive and quick about it um, in terms of it being a conversation. And I think in terms of the book feels from, I know books take forever and I know Chance, you laboured hard on this, um, but there is still something quite fast about this book, and I appreciate that because from conversation to publishing was a couple of years. But if we think about the academic publishing cycle, which is like five to seven years, it means that really important conversations that are happening right now can be in people's hands and extended. Um, and I think the format also worked for me because I'm dyslexic. So if I had to write it, it would take forever and maybe not happen. And there's something about valuing an oral tradition. You know, therapy is such an oral tradition. And yet our knowledge is often held when I train therapists, people say, oh, well, I haven't read enough or I haven't done this. And our relationship to reading is a huge part of our relationship to being therapists, I think, um, and how we feel sort of competent and up to date. Yet it is an oral tradition based on the oral traditions of of healing and storytelling and being with people in conversation and connecting. And so that's where it feels like the book does mirror the practice, the form and function thing, which I really appreciate about it as well. Neil, I can't remember whether you were interviewed or whether you wrote. Um, well, it was kind of, we found out as we went. So I guess okay. the chapter I co-wrote, and I should say that Paul Harris and Anthea Benjamin were my co-authors, and it really was um, the three of us with Chance's support, really, in terms of talking to Chance. And then sort of it developed, it was more like we ended up talking, the three of us, every month for six months. We were a bit like, how do we hold on to what can become very slippery knowledge mm-hmm. in a culture that... I don't know. I quite like this phrase. I was thinking, I think I heard it by some sort of um, a drag program, but this idea that we're all groomed to be kind of cisgender and straight. And so then when you're up against that, there's something about how do we hold on to kind of queer knowledge? And I remember first when I was just kind of Googling and started looking for research around queer children, it's like, can we even use that language somehow? Like, dare we even say that? But it's not like queer people are born. Um, I don't know, the age of consent or some sort of fairly arbitrary thing or 16 or something. So, um, and it was really helpful to have kind of co-parents really in, in the writing and the reflecting and chances role in that was really important. Um, and for us to be able to integrate different, different bits that we bought, you know, in terms of Anthea brought brilliant kind of experience with children, teenagers, as well as an anti-racist perspective. Um, Paul brought his experience in terms of working as a supervisor and uh, with a lot of experience of working with with queer children and I guess I have a history in youth work so it was sort of like we were thinking developmentally even developmentally even within the idea of child mm-hmm. and it sort of feels now like it's just the beginning <laughs> you know like for all the specific work and curiosities that are out there in the world and hoping that that sparked by the the thinking and the the sharing, I guess. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you'd like to hear a full version of this discussion, please go to our YouTube channel and search for Queering Psychotherapy. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank thank you. you. Thanks, Thanks, everyone.